Hello and welcome to another episode of Fourth Wall, the podcast. My name is Elena Newell and today we are talking with Jenna Zhu. Jenna is so amazing. Not only is she an incredibly talented Asian American actress, she's also leading discussions in anti-racism in the theater industry. Her and Kate Lumpkin have teamed up to bring a series of workshops to artists of all kinds, creating an open space for everyone to discuss and learn and hold themselves accountable. So today we get into all of that. We talk about all the anti-racism work and how you can find some new workshops. And we also talk about the importance of not only making sure our allies are held accountable, but also we're holding ourselves accountable. Because I think something that people don't talk about enough when it comes to these discussions on race and the Black Lives Matter movement is that while our allies are the quote-unquote oppressors and they it's their job to help dismantle the system it is also up to us to do the work of unlearning all of that bias that we were taught ourselves um i've talked to many peers about the idea that i have also had to unlearn anti-blackness because it's ingrained into us from such a young age everywhere we look and it's important that everyone holds themselves accountable and that we all look at this as something that we all have to work towards, you know? If we want the theater industry specifically, if we want our country to look the way that it can and the way that it should, we have to make sure that everyone is taking responsibility for it. It's not one person's job to end racism or one person's job to end tokenism. It is all of us. We have to all work together to create this thing that we want, you know? So... I hope you guys enjoy. It was a really good conversation, and I would love to have Jenna back again just to educate us because, man, this woman educates, okay? Okay, enjoy the episode, y'all. <laughs> Hello, everyone. We are here with Jenna Zhu. <laughs> Jenna, before we get started, if you want to tell the people a little bit about who you are. Yes, I would love to. So my name is Jenna Zhu, and I am um, an actor, activist, um, anti-racist facilitator. I have been based in New York City for the last several years and um, been really involved in the theater community, done regional theater off-Broadway, as well as working in plenty of administrative capacities in the theater and I am um, transitioning to uh, moving into Los, moving to Los Angeles um, mm. to do more film and TV. Um, yeah, which has actually been like a, an incredible uh, kind of gift of COVID is <laughs> just, um, I guess, the ability to relocate somewhat easily. Right. <laughs> yeah, and bring about a lot of endings and new beginnings. Um, yeah. That's awesome. That's so exciting. Yeah, thank you. Yes, and I'm currently quarantining happily at home in Dallas, <laughs> Texas. Um, yeah, and enjoying the ride. Enjoying it for yes. one Precisely. That's all we can do in this moment is just go on the path and see where it takes us, especially in a COVID situation. Yeah, um, this this is the journey. Yeah. What's it like quarantining in Dallas, Texas? I don't know what Texas is like when it comes to like 
regulations and stuff like that? Is everything like pretty chill? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, where I am, I'm lucky it's like a little bit remote. It's on a, it's kind of um, in the greater Dallas-Fort Worth area. So there's a lot of um, space where I'm at um, and a good amount of distance from house to house. So, um, and thankfully people are like pretty mindful when it comes to being in public places. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Dallas proper, uh, I don't venture there very much. Because <laughs> like, you know, suburb kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, we're, we're a little spoiled. So <laughs> I relate, I relate to this. <laughs> yes, for real. You, you, you get my gist. Totally. <laughs> so tell, tell me, Jenna, how did you first, uh, discover like performance or like arts in terms of like sitting down and being like, Oh, I want to do this for a career. Ooh, oh man, that is a great <laughs> and loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, I would say that like I consciously accepted it um, more in like as a young adult slash adolescent. Um, I think though, like my experiences and like witnessing art, like performance um, as a child and like teenager have all been just incredibly significant and left indelible memories in my mind. And it took me a while to a realize that that personal connection is really special and that it's actually meaningful in our society, which, you know, can be very capitalist and um, very also monetarily driven. Um, Yeah. uh, So realize that that was special and that uh, I, and then it was about coming to terms with accepting that this is a respectable career path. I'm sure there are many people who can relate to that journey. Um, And yeah, and for a while I was kind of in denial about that. (laughs) Um, And then I worked a real job and I was like, oh yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, but, but the path that that has been really interesting and there's you know there's no one single way to be an artist you know just like there's no one single way or like right or wrong way in all honesty to be um, an anti-racist person um it there's no one size fits all at all um but yeah in college i studied so i went to a small liberal arts college um 10 miles south of philly called swarthmore college and I studied political science and psychology, which was actually actually ended up being very useful for acting as well as for anti-racism work because you know it just gave me a really solid foundation in understanding how groups work and how people um, think and behave, um, especially in various circumstances and situations, um, and taking into account like all of the various factors that um, influence that, like history, culture, um, uh, yeah, and patterns, like patterns of history as well, Um, as well as a really, I feel like, solid foundation in ethics, and the, it really instilled in me a sense of civic duty, um, and responsibility to my community, you know, like, we're, we exist in community um, no matter what, and it's how we're built as social animals. 
And I think it's become incredibly apparent during COVID times how much we need other people. Mm. Um, And yeah, I can definitely speak for myself in saying that I have really come to appreciate all of my relationships and review all of them and realize how meaningful they are. And as well as perhaps times when I might have taken them for granted and realizing that, you know, now that I'm aware and conscious of that, realize, I realize that I never want to do that again. I always want to take the time to um, invest in those relationships and be present for them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Can you recall, like, the first time um, you saw someone on a stage or in a film that looked like you and made you feel some, like, kind of like, oh, this person that I look up to can do this, maybe I can do this? Was there someone in your childhood or, like, as you were, like, your earlier years in your career, like, there's someone that you looked to? In all honesty, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like... There are real life figures, I think, who um, are very inspiring, um, you know, female figures in Asian American history or like in the civil rights movement um, that I'm like, wow, they are people who made a real difference um, in, you know, the community and the course of history. And as far as being on stage, uh, no, and that that really gets to, you know, the um, the the implicit bias <laughs> that um, I'm sure we will expound upon. <laughs> um, yeah, within the industry. And, you know, they're the only, you know, as as I am sure you and possibly many of our listeners <laughs> already know, the only racial group, shall we say, you know, and we'll say racial category because we know, or if we don't know now we do, that um, race doesn't have a scientific basis, but the social construct is very real and we see the consequences of um, policies that have been shaped based on um, this construct, uh, that the only racial group that is represented and overrepresented in the theater, in the entertainment industry as a whole is Caucasian. Yeah. Um, and all types of Caucasian, <laughs> you know, yeah, like I was reading about this, um, in this one group, the, the question of, um, is it okay for Asian Americans to play different ethnicities or like, you know, Asian actors to play, say, um, a Japanese actor to play like a Chinese role or person or something like that. And yeah, I mean, there were, it, it was a really robust discussion and honestly, like the, my friend actually um, left a great comment saying like equity first and then, you know, accuracy is the next level. Mm. Um, yeah, which I think is such a great way to look at it as a whole, because the larger issue is that we don't have equitable representation. Right. And is there a way to prove that implicit bias is what caused this? No. But, you know, as, um, gosh, uh, like we as James Baldwin says, like on the Dick Cavett show, like this is the evidence and we have to go by that. And I can tell how you feel by the state of the institutions that you have set up and created. Right. So, yeah, we've we've got the receipts. Yes, let's get into that. Cause I think the yes. coolest thing about, um, as I've been learning and researching all of the work that all the anti-racism work you're doing is 
I think a lot of people think when we talk about mm-hmm. discrimination or bias in the theater industry that we're just talking about like our white artists or our white actors. But in reality, like everyone across the board has to do the work to unlearn the systems that have been set in place from the beginning. Everyone is responsible for unlearning that and for helping to unpack that. Can So can we talk a little bit about like how you started this work? Um, what was the cause of all of it? Yes, yes. So the cause of all of it is a lot of mistakes on my part. Yeah, and anti-racism work is about correcting mistakes. Oh, I think it's great to, first of all, just admit and embrace mistakes. And and this is how we move forward, actually, is by making mistakes and correcting them. And it took, um, I had people who exhibited a lot of grace in my life and um, said, you know, I, I think this is, um, this is a gap in your awareness and who are kind enough to point it out to me. And I am so grateful and glad um, because had they not, um, I, I wouldn't have known. And that's the thing about um, anti-racism work that I think can be a little bit intimidating when people are starting out, like no matter what our background or walk, walk of life, whatever walks of life we're coming from is that we can feel a lot of remorse, guilt, shame around um, our ourselves <laughs> and who we are um, and what we've done, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all a really, really important part of the process because without that, we wouldn't know not to do it in the future. Um, and, and I think the thing that can trip people up is... Um, being stuck in the guilt and the shame and not being able to um, see the possibility for change and see the possibility for change not only in the wider world but also in themselves and the people closest to them. And that is, I think, my biggest takeaway from doing this work is that it is possible for people to change and it's never too late. I know I sound like a Hallmark (laughs) movie right now, but, um, you know, I, I, I really embrace it because I've seen a lot of transformation um in myself and in other people through um through doing this work and having these really cool conversations so how i got started um through these mistakes is um, <laughs> i so i was an apprentice at the actors theater of louisville um in their professional training company and um, that was my first real like regional theater experience i would say and there was um an equity diversity inclusion committee uh, that was open to everybody um, that season. And I was a part of that cohort. So we were having these discussions and I think I was really lucky to enter the industry at a time, like both opportunities were opening up as well as I think people, this suddenly became top of mind for people and Mm -hmm. there was a recognition and the beginning of, I would say, our, uh, not not just in the theater and in the entertainment industry, but in kind of the country. Um, and yeah, so equity, diversity, and inclusion was definitely a really significant step along that way. Um, and we'll, we, we can talk about why um, diversity is not anti-racist. <laughs> but um, yeah, and so that really got me oriented to these issues. And we had the opportunity to do... Um, during the Humana Festival, which is um, part of the season in the spring that happens 
um, I had the opportunity to present a um, TED style talk with my um, colleague, Janelle Renee Dunn, who is incredible and is currently the education associate there. And um, she is um, an African American woman. And we were just talking about our experiences of um, being uh, women of color in the industry. And um, it was basically a talk on allyship 101. And it was during college day. So it was for college students who were attending. Um, and it was just such an incredible opportunity to be able to speak to young people in the next generation who are entering into the industry about how to begin to, to think about these issues. Um, and yeah, and I think at that time too, like um, there was the sense of people wanting more information about how to get involved. Um, and so fast forward a couple years later to, well, present day. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so then I was working in New York for a couple of years. And um, yeah, and the Humana Festival there is where I also met Kate Lumpkin, who is my co-facilitator of these anti-racism rallies workshops. And uh, she started the day after um, Broadway shut down the No Marking Society um, as a community to provide uh, free classes and education um, since everybody couldn't get out to take classes and also couldn't afford to take them anymore. Um, and it was such an incredible resource. And then as the Black Lives Matter movement started picking up um, in June, she offered out the platform to BIPOC artists specifically, if, if they so desired to, um, to specifically highlight their voices. And I could tell that a lot of people wanted a primer for how to begin to understand and do anti-racism work and didn't know where to begin because it is overwhelming <laughs> and um, there's a lot of information out there. Mm -hmm. um, so she and I put our heads together and I said, you know, I, I feel like there, there is a demand for this type of information. And what if you and I put, we've, we've both on, been on these anti-racist journeys. And what if we put um, our heads together and created something for the community? Um, so we did a three-part workshop um, in July with um, providing context um, and then delving into recognizing bias. Um, and then dealing with how to have difficult conversations to help people on their personal um, anti-racist journeys, which like to me is such an important, it, it is the starting point. It's the foundational piece is having a personal connection, desire to do anti-racist work because we can do, take all of the actions that we want and they may still have an impact. We can donate all we want, protest all we want, but unless we have a true, true connection to it and a true desire and reason, um, that comes from our own selves um, when we're actually faced with those situations where it's kind of ambiguous what kind of action to take mm -hmm. it'll be very clear in the moment because when we say we stand for this and these are my true core values it also means i don't stand for this and being able to recognize and parse that out in those challenging situations is what's going to allow us to actually move the needle yes so what does that in so 
in like a beginning workshop, what does that include for someone who participates in that? Yes. So we start off um, with a discussion of intersectionality that um, is just so, so key to this discussion. Um, because oftentimes um, the the rhetoric can be very, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, like black and white. <laughs> and, and I mean that in all senses of the word. Uh, yeah. You know, and it's very like right and wrong. And, um, you know, as we know, like starting a conversation from there doesn't actually <laughs> lead to very meaningful discussion or very, um, doesn't really leave open much potential for change. So our yeah. So our goal is to um, give people a framework and a way to understand these issues, both from a historical perspective, so we go into um, some of the ways that systemic racism has, you know, developed from its origins, like, you know, specific to the United States, like not necessarily to, um, you know, other countries, although there are patterns that do um, repeat and um, within different contexts um, internationally. Uh, because as we know, white supremacy is a global <laughs> issue. <laughs> it's global, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. Um, so we look into historical context. We also, um, drawing on some of like my background in psychology, we also talk about the effects of um, the phenomena that we see in terms of how people justify of racism so things like stereotype threat things like in group out group um bias implicit bias um we have people examine the 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 science behind that and we see that a lot of this is kind of built into the human brain you know and that's that's the thing about um this work as well is that we want to widen the lens so that it's not only personal it is personal and it's also not personal at the same time mm. because when somebody hears the word racist kind of it um it tends to be a judgment or or that's not the right word but it's like it's a label that um mm -hmm. people just have this knee-jerk reaction to and so yeah. even examining what that word really means it's like it's a system of oppression that has been reified over time. Um, and it's and it's self-perpetuating as well in a lot of ways. And we participate in that system, both the people who benefit as well as the people who suffer from it. And we all have a role to play in eradicating it. So this is also about locating ourselves within this wider social lens of where are we along different axes of privilege? Because just because we have privilege along certain lines doesn't also mean that we haven't experienced oppression in other lines. Most mm -hmm. people tend to be, uh, tend to have experienced both. You know, I think that's pretty fair to say. And that can also arise a lot in these conversations is very much the what about us is more like, you know, just because I right. um, am, uh, I'm not a person of color doesn't mean that I have haven't been oppressed. Of course, you know that is absolutely the case. And the thing is, in the grand scheme of things, it's about what uh, who are we centering at this point in time? And um, in a way, it's about the most pre pressing or urgent need. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in this work, um, we we just always say like uh, up front that we're centering the most vulnerable in our population. Like that's really what you know anti-oppression work is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now, the time is the time right now is to center Black and Indigenous people. Right. And that's just, that's a non-negotiable like to me and in our book <laughs> with the understanding that um, there are also many, many marginalized groups um, and that the time to center them will come about more or less naturally as a result of centering the right. vulnerable group. Because the thing about intersectionality is these, to isolate one single issue is kind of artificially trying to divide and parse out our experiences such that really in my mind in kind of a a capitalist way, (laughs) you know, such that such that we can can solve it um, as, as if we don't have to deal with all of the issues that relate to it. Right. Because Mm -hmm. uh, issues of race also have to do with issues of class also have to do with issues of um, access and accessibility also have to do with issues of, um, gender uh, and have to do with mm-hmm. issues of uh, gender identity and um, just all of these lines of identity and to try and actually separate them out is to try and make us not who we are um, and right. is to try and erase who we are in in a way um, and in a very artificial way um, and colonialist imperial imperialist way I will say <laughs> um, so this 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 approach is about being the big picture and with with that in mind as well as um developing that personal connection because um it's all about reflecting on our own journeys Uh, because once we understand that we can understand how we fit into this larger societal structure and begin to speak about it in a way that is actually reflective of what's going on and not just what we think is going on on the surface and yeah yeah, and that's how we can really have difficult conversations is if we truly understand what the um, the dynamics underpinning these interactions are whether they are visible or not um and then being able to come with an open mind, um, with mm. the desire to learn, um, rather than to prove that I am right and you are wrong, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the number one thing that um, can be the the number one roadblock in difficult conversations. Yeah, I. I find that sometimes when you have those conversations and people aren't necessarily ready, not take ownership, but ready to confront their own specific issues, um, it's turned into like a, I used, I used to call it the oppression Olympics where everyone would oh try my to God. justify. Oh my God, I can't with the oppression what? Olympics, I can't, <laughs> I'm so dead. <laughs> trying to like justify well like I know how you feel because of this experience instead of taking what someone is saying to you and recognizing that ah this is inherently a difficult situation because of who they are in the world and I will work to help correct that yeah um so how do you create those conversations 
like with the people around you, with your peers, um, like how can people who really want to have these conversations with their friends or their family, but they don't know how to approach it without anyone feeling, um, I want to say attacked or judged, like what's a good first step you would say to creating those kinds of conversations? Mm -hmm. Honestly, I think the best first step is to begin with oneself and to um, get into make sure you're in integrity with yourself and about what it is that you want to say because sometimes our silence can speak volumes and mm. sometimes we need to speak up you know and um right like there can be a lot of pressure I think as well for people for people to speak up when they don't necessarily feel like they they know um what it is that they want to say and um you know and and it and it's coming like you know um i i noticed this a lot you know with um specifically with like white allies or like my friends um and uh yeah one great thing that i heard from um nicole brewer who has incredible course that everyone should take whether you are a theater person or not <laughs> you know I'm like <laughs> yeah um it's called conscientious theater training um and anti-racist um she, she created the anti-racist theater and um to me she is the future <laughs> so <laughs> yeah something that she said that was so great is trust intent and name impact mm. and the thing is like everybody has so everybody has an individual experience Right. And everybody is an individual. So there's no way to, there's no way to know what anybody else is experiencing in that moment. All we can do honestly is hold space, have empathy and listen. And that's all we can do. And as well as be aware of the dynamics that may be um, inherent in the conversation, but not assuming necessarily that, mm. um, just because say I am in a conversation with a white person <laughs> that they uh, will attribute all of my um, experiences to, 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 to being Asian American or like my entire world. Right. Right. You know, not having that assumption, but having that awareness and being open to the possibility as well as being educated enough in what it means to be on the receiving side of that type of quote unquote oppression, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to recognize one's role in that moment. And I I love what you said near the end about like also understanding that like no one person is the representative of the entire race or even the entire race as it relates to theater. So understanding like because everyone's experiences are different, you can't go to one person and think that'll be your cure-all. It's really about like engaging with as many different types of people and personalities as you can to really understand uh, your full comprehension of bias. I really, I want to go back mm -hmm. um, earlier. You were talking about the difference between diversity and anti-racism. Uh, diversity. Yes. yes. Let's All get right. into that. So I actually learned this from the Broadway for Black Lives Matter forum, which was fire. And um, yeah, I, uh, the, so yeah, the, the idea of diversity is inherently othering. Um, mm -hmm. And in that way, one could say it is inherently racist because it assumes 
Okay, first of all, it's, it's basically lumping everybody who is not white into an entire group, which, um, as we know, right. is kind of inherently racist. <laughs> and um, it's the idea that rect that rectifying um, historic systems of inequity through meeting a quota that usually is not mm. actually 50%, which in all honesty, if it were to reflect what the world looks like, it would be more than 50%, like people of color are not white people, right. and, you know, we're actually the global majority, as Nicole Brewer says, which I think right. is awesome, <laughs> because we are, <laughs> um, right, um, that that will inherently um, change the power structures. When the power structure, mm. um, they have an institution, and the people who have decision-making power, the bodies that have this um and and not just like physical bodies but like groups of people um yeah. have decision-making power um the onus really falls upon them to fix the problem you know I am grossly right. oversimplifying but part of accountability in my mind is about understanding where the responsibility actually lies for Mm. rectifying injustice like we right. to, to me um both the personal anti-racist work and um the the workshops you know that I'm doing to help um people on these journeys is um this is this is not just gosh I feel like I feel like I'm I feel like I'm um what's the word? Like, thank you for coming to my TED talk, that kind of thing, like on my soapbox. <laughs> but the thing is, we, we, not just the theater community, but America has done Black people wrong from the beginning. So this is not just, in my mind, an act of service. It is an obligation. It is the obligation that we have mm -hmm. as theater artists um, to, to work in this field. And you know, I, and I say artists as having this role as well. I, I think of it that way, because for me, at least I, I, I can definitely say that we, I, I feel that I didn't go in, I didn't choose to become an artist because I was okay with the status quo, you know, like we go into the arts yeah. <laughs> because we want to envision a better future. We want to imagine something that is greater than what we currently have. And that is our role. Like that is our job. And that includes um, the way in which we create, you know, our work. It has to be inclusive. It has to be equitable. It has to be, like, at this point, anti-racist. Um, not at this point, at every point, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, um, yeah, so to me, it's part of my job description. Yeah. Yeah. And I love what you just said about the idea that it makes sense that artists would lead this kind of not that we're that artists are leading this but that artists would be most equipped for this job in the idea that our whole careers are based on collaboration yes. and the melding of different ideas and styles to create something bigger than mm -hmm. ourselves mm -hmm. um and that's what we've been doing from the beginning it's just now it's time to like practice what we preach and to genuinely follow that line of inclusivity that we want to project to the world and just making sure that that everyone feels that way because we talked about that in a previous episode I was talking with um, some black students 
who had graduated from different BFA mm. programs um, about the frustration they felt of feeling isolated and ostracized while at the same time their programs were preaching about how inclusive they were oh. and how supportive the arts are at the same time while they didn't feel any of that support. And I think um, it's so interesting watching artists tackle this issue mm. because for a lot of people, it would make sense for them to assume that we were already inclusive. Uh, because me? we've been viewed <laughs> as one of the more inclusive departments. Like they think we're more inclusive than like business or like accounting, I guess. So they're like, well, you do art. So maybe like that means you care more about people. But understanding that like when it's a systemic yeah. issue, it goes throughout all businesses, all industries from the bottom to the top and like really embracing that and using our gift of creation and our gift of compassion and empathy mm to help show mm -hmm, others mm -hmm. yeah yeah I mean granted you like yes there is a tiny bit of a self-selective process perhaps of like the types <laughs> of people personalities who would you know pursue this uh professionally or at least in um advanced studies uh that's head like th th this is a societal issue right <laughs> just um yeah, yeah. and Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. I'm just so like, I'm just so shook. I feel like that claim because I'm like, what, what planet is that person on? <laughs> like, at what, yeah, at what right. planet are they from? Because it is not this one. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, like in my mind, it's again with that accountability piece, like I honestly feel that there are some, there are some inherent issues within the theater industrial complex that um, are a microcosm of the larger societal issues that we're seeing across like all different fields, like governments, um, finance, like pretty much like every every major realm of life in society, right? Of like organized community. Right. And there are certain solutions that have to be pursued or um, created at a level above the one at which the problems are being experienced, if that makes sense. So like really how I, analyze or dissect it and that how I think about it and this is purely my opinion is that um the the if we if we start from the top down um which which is not to say that we don't also need like bottom-up um approaches but um just uh thinking of it from the top down like it starts with government right and who we elect mm -hmm. into office everyone yes. please vote everyone yes. Please vote. <laughs> there are no excuses. I have a broken record. <laughs> Just like, vote. like <laughs> exercise your civic duty and your civic rights. And I say, and I say duty in a very like mom tapping your shoulder on the way or like annoying aunt way, because like it, it is our responsibility, like of every single person in this society um, to participate and the, 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 the gosh, what is it? The definition of, I think it is community, communitas. Um, I learned this from an acting teacher, Patsy Rodenberg, incredible, um, who says the definition of it comes from putting the needs of the whole above those of the individual, of the group um, mm. above the individual. And that's what a community is. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> you know, and that's, yes. yes. And that's what we're like, taught to do as artists and society makes it very hard for certain groups um, of people to experience the same 
um, level of benefits. And that's, that's what privilege is. And that's what distributive, um, that's what the whole argument behind distributive justice is. It's reallocation of resources so that we can actually get something that looks more equitable because collaboration, even if it's just for a fixed period of time in that moment, I, I truly believe that true collaboration has to happen can only happen rather when there is true equality. And that means you and I and anybody who comes to this quote unquote table, you know, um, table of collaboration is a full equal whole human being, no more or less than the other. Um, yeah. And, you know, granted, you know, Granted, there are, you know, different roles that we play within a production or within a project, but for that moment, there is no valuing of one voice above another. No one person's voice is more or less important than another's. They all carry equal weight. And to be able to have that in my mind is true collaboration and the conditions under which we have to have that are at the moment instilling um, anti-racist practices, whether it's, um, you know, right. training to, you know, there's this movement to eliminate 10 out of 12s, which I think is um, really spot on <laughs> in terms of labor, labor and how it's used, to um, hiring practices, to um, just, gosh, like the WCU, White American Theater Demand, mm. wow, like, I have to say, mad respect and thank you. Thank you to all these artists who laid out this offering, you know, and just made it clear, like, what it is that people, did, people, what the steps are, and now we got to go right. about actually taking them, <laughs> um, so yeah, in my mind, it's like the first level is government, um, and then the next level, uh, to me, is, like, our educational systems, and our, um, but just general infrastructure, and then media, um, which obviously like ties into entertainment as well. And there's a natural trickle down effect. I feel like that starts from there and goes to every level of society. And sometimes getting on board with this larger movement, I think is one of the best thing that we as theater artists can do. Because if we can't in the moment implement it on the more granular level or the um, smaller level, you know, we can follow the lead of those who are trying to do it above us because sometimes those solutions have to come from there. That said, yeah, we also have our own role to play. And the the other thing is no person's role is too small or too large. And I think that's a really important mm. thing to remember about anti-racist work and about um and about our humanity. Like there's no person whose role is too large or too small, whether it be the garbage man, like he plays, he or she, they play an essential role in our society. Oh my God, just trying to imagine life without them and it would be really horrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they have the least glamorous job, but their role is, you could you could even say it's more essential, quote unquote, more or less, like, you know, than ours. Like in all honesty, I don't believe they're like more or less essential. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. and um, you know, that, that was also for myself as well, like something that, um, took a little while to find and took some acceptance to recognize like what my role is and you know and and that can also shift as well like over time because um what is needed as a whole you know will shift over time um right. but yeah I think like 
for example, in like social justice movements, there's a lot of um, emphasis on like uh, organizing and mobilizing people. And um, I had to, I realized like over the course of training and being in those kinds of spaces that it wasn't my natural strength. Um, but I discovered that I was good at having difficult conversations. And all of a sudden, <laughs> like now is the time when a lot of difficult conversations are being had. And uh, right. a lot of them are not being had in a way that is um, necessarily conducive to bringing about the change that we want. And so, um, mm -hmm. yeah, like, you know, just, and realizing that that is something that um, I can offer is this, uh, so, some best practices, at least from my own experience. Yes. Um, yes. Ah, oh, Jenna, you are so cool and awesome. Ah, I have loved you talking so to you. Cool. We have to go. I love talking but to you. Before we go, oh my please tell already? the people. I know we've been, time is just, it's zooming. Holy <laughs> mo! Oh my gosh. But tell yes. the people where they can find you, um, your social media, where they can find your work. If you're offering any anti-racism workshops soon, where they can find those. We are, yes. So um, Kate Lumpkin and I, um, Kate is an incredible casting director and she also has um, an interview on this incredible show. Thank yes. you, Elena. Um, Yes, and uh, listen to it because she has the most incredible insights to offer. That's a good one. Um, yes, so she and I, um, we so we are offering the replays of the um, July anti-racist workshops or anti-racism for allies workshops um, for free. So if you want to catch those replays and those resources, you can um, message me. You can find me on Instagram at Jenna Humbing Zoo um, or on Twitter at Jenna Zoo, um, also on Facebook. And we'll be advertising about our next round of Anti-Racism for Allies, um, which we're offering through the Actor Center DC. And it starts next Thursday yes. <laughs> um, at uh, PM, and it's going to be online. Um, yeah, and you can join for any one or all three of those workshops. Um, please also feel free to follow us and to register online. We can include the link. And yes, I'm always happy to help people on the journey of anti-racism. It is very personal. It is very individual. And again, there's no one size fits all. So if you have like questions, want tips, pointers um, about where to begin, all of that, I am more than happy to um, entertain any of those questions and help and give you guidance. Um, and if you are part of an organization that wants this training, feel free to um, DM us as well. And we're, we're always happy to, to bring it and to make it accessible. Um, the, the July workshops were free. The, the ones starting next week are by donation. And we just feel that this information is so crucial mm. to have and um, that um, communities that may not necessarily like granted the internet is a resource um but uh, yeah we really want everyone to be able to um, access this training who wants it so we will make it work for you yes ah uh, jenna this was so awesome this thank you so, so much for joining us thank you thank you um and you are you are doing the work girl yes <laughs> thank you we are trying um, over here no i am i am your number one fan I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Fourth Wall, the podcast with Jenna Zhu. 
If you guys really like this conversation and want to learn more, make sure you check out our show notes as we have links to everything that we referenced today, as well as links to any upcoming workshops, keynote speeches, anything that is related to what Kate and Jenna are doing with this amazing anti-racism work can be found all in the description below. So make sure you guys check that out and we'll see you next time.